Welcome to part two of J.J. Campanella's The Full Armor of God. Four. It has been said that no matter how alone you may think yourself when visiting the Arab world, it is nothing more than an illusion. You may be seated on a desolate mountaintop, savoring your solitude, only to have it shattered by some jabbering imbecile offering to be your guide. You may be treading the sands of the deepest Libyan desert, dying of thirst, believing yourself to be the only human in thousands of square kilometers. But a nomad will always stumble upon you, wondering if you are not interested in purchasing the directions to the next waterhole. I am an Arab, despite all my brainwashing, but I never understood the truth of that old axiom until the night of our mission to the last extant oil field of my native lands. Logic would have said the best way to destroy the Gawar oil field would have been to drop our nuke from a fast plane and get out, but there were more factors at work than logic. Too many more factors. First, there were the practical aspects of it. The entire 6,000 square kilometers of oil field was no longer actively producing oil. The only active area left was a couple of hundred square kilometers of desert near a place called the Jah Ochan. We did not need to destroy the entire field, just a portion of it. The rest would be contaminated by the nuclear blast. Of course, our strategic problem was complicated because we could not just plunge the bomb into the surface of the desert. That would have had little effect on the oil field. We simply did not have enough megatons to rupture the oil-bearing strata far beneath the surface. So it was resolved that the nuclear device would have to be lowered down the open shaft of an oil well before it could be detonated. Only then could we cause maximal damage. The last factor Procopius made me take into account was the most ironic. He wanted us to detonate the device as far from any villages or habitations as possible. He seemed almost as concerned with sparing the lives of any civilians as I was. A jet chopper set us down in the Jao Ochan. A Jao is a sandy bottom depression or basin with gentle slopes, like a shallow valley. Setting down in the Jao Khan offered us enough cover to keep distant prying eyes from observing our entry into the homeland of my fathers. It seemed like a mocking and horrible kind of homecoming, but I did not have enough domination over even my own fate to let it worry me. The moment the chopper hit the soft sand, my people were out of the vehicle. They dissolved into the surrounding shadows, becoming one with the desert. The team was composed of my eight best men, plus myself and Major St. Simon. I hopped from the chopper and glided over to the base of the jaw's rocky sloping incline. St. Simon, following close behind, hunkered down beside me as the rest of the team positioned themselves in the area. The moon was a thin sliver of argent, low in the western sky. The stars were hard, bright, almost accusing tonight. My internal sensors told me it was a cool night, but the environmental controls in my body armor automatically compensated for any potential discomfort. A wispy breeze tugged at the sparse vegetation that clung to the sides of the jar. I roused my night vision and scanned the length of the shallow valley 
as far as my resolution could extend. I could detect nothing alarming, but that was only for the moment I amended mentally. I gave the all-clear signal to the jet chopper. The black vehicle lifted in a cloud of sand. The gentle whirring of its blades made little impact on the surrounding desert night. The chopper would be back in forty-five minutes. It would circle silently above us until then. The forty-five minutes gave us fifteen to get to our site, fifteen to do the job, and fifteen to get back. The nuke would be set to blow five minutes after that. It sounded like a simple by-the-numbers kind of operation, but my gut kept telling me that something nasty was looming on the horizon. St. Elgin, St. Thomas, St. Sebastian, St. Bernard, I sub-vocalized into the battle network. I heard my men's chorus of yes sir in my head. Uncannily there was no sound in the dead air of the desert. Scouts, recon, I ordered them. I want you at the compass points around our main group, at no less of a distance than five kilometers. Again I heard the chorus replies echoing in my skull. With the preternatural silence of raids, my four scouts melted off in their separate directions. Their black battle armor made them virtually invisible against the dark sands and slowly shifting shadows of the night. I activated my retinal map of the Gawar region. My scouts appeared on the map as blue phosphine dots around my main grouping of green phosphines. I decided to sit tight for a few moments before moving out. I wanted a preliminary scouting report on the surrounding few kilometers before I went anywhere with the rest of my men. I listened to the chatter that passed between the men around me and the scouts. Sergeant St. Nicholas, called Corporal St. Elgin. Yes. From nearby came the gruff tones of Sergeant St. Nicholas. I hope you've got that nuke secure. As safe as a baby in its mother's arms. Not your mother, I hope. How many times did she drop you? I heard St. Nicholas's quiet chuckle in my head. You're right, Elgin, but at least she picked me up again. Your mother must have just left you with the dog, thinking how much you two had in common. There were scattered guffaws. I let them have their fun. They needed to break up the tension somehow. The scouting report sifted in over the next few minutes. They were all the same. The desert of the Gawar was quiet, dead, and desolate. No civilian, military, or any other kind of personnel seemed anywhere in the area, at least within five kilometers. Though mostly pleased with the intelligence, I remained uneasy for some reason I could not pin down. I sighed to myself. Well, we could sit here all night. I had to be satisfied at the scouting reports. I was already cutting the rendezvous time with the choppers pretty close. There was no purpose to waiting any longer. I gave the orders to move toward our target. Do not bunch together, I instructed. I do not want one man to be in sight of another. Spread out over the ten kilometers between us and the scouts. Move quickly, quietly, and carefully. I want no problems or mistakes at this stage. Am I understood? There were the automatic assents to my commands. Good. Let us get on with this. I watched as the green phosphines of my retinal map scattered with amazing alacrity. It took them only moments to line up on the oil well that was our destination. Before I moved out of the Jha'okhan, 
I made certain everything was going smoothly. I sat in the shadows of a boulder and observed the green dots that were the elect, moving eastward in a loose V formation that reminded me of migrating birds. When St. Sebastian, my westernmost scout, started circling back toward my position, I decided it was time to move out of the safety of the valley. I made my way up the slope of the Jar, easily keeping my footing on the stony ground. Tapping the rise, I took in the view from my vantage point. Beneath me there was a short stretch of rolling Gadawat, a sandy region covered with low shrubs. I had been expecting the shrubby area. It was labelled on my map as the Gadawat Ad-Drom. I frowned. To the east, about a kilometre away, was a broad, rocky hill with sandy slopes. In Arabic, the formation was called a Barka. In the general scheme of things, the presence of the Barka did not bother me. It was just a hill. What annoyed me was that the hill was not a detail on my retinal map. I ground my teeth, wondering what other details Procopius's intelligence gatherers had missed. I swore silently. I knew from experience that the little things got you killed. St. Simon, I called. Yes, sir, came the immediate response. The Major's green dot flashed to indicate his position. Be careful out there, I warned. Cardinal Procopius's intelligence is not worth donkey turds. Sir? There's a Barca here that is not on my map. Makes me wonder whether there are not more important things he has not taken into account. Yes, Colonel, I noticed that... Colonel! broke in St. Elgin's excited bass voice. What is it, Corporal? I asked suddenly, very worried. I think we've got a situation here. What kind of situation? I demanded. I am now six clicks south of the attack group, said St. Elgin. I noted immediately where his blue dot flashed. He was indeed six clicks from the main group, which was now only three clicks from the well, which stood out as a red triangle on my map. A couple of hundred meters in front of me is an old man. He looks like a goat herder. In fact, I have visual contact with the goats. He doesn't look like he's going anywhere. Do you want me to take him out? I was faced with a small dilemma here. I could tell Elgin to kill him or stun him unconscious. That would certainly keep him from raising an alarm. What little alarm a goat herder could raise. But I did not want to kill civilians. On the other hand, he would probably die in the Gawa's forthcoming nuclear conflagration. I frowned, realizing I could not help the old man, whoever he might be. But the least I could do would be to let him enjoy his last few minutes of life in peace. I finally responded to St. Elgin. No, leave him. Make sure that there are no more like him about. That goes for the rest of you too, I added addressing the other scouts. Detect any civilians in the area, but do not initiate any violence against them. Do you understand? Yes, sir, came a multi-voiced answer. I returned my attention to the terrain I was passing over. With a few jolting propulsions of my augmented limbs into the smooth black of the midnight sand, I made my way to the top of the unnamed Barca. I still wondered vaguely why it had not been on my map. Cresting the peak of the broad hill, I halted again to survey the surrounding area. To the east, the sandy, scrub-dotted plain of a Marbach 
extended off as far as my perceptions allowed. My retinal map told me St. Simon and his group were almost to the well, labelled in scarlet fluorescent letters as Beer 331. Though I could make out the motionless dark bulks of the oil derricks dotting the plain, I could detect no motion from my men. That pleased me because it meant anyone else who was looking for them would have a hell of a time noticing my black tigers. I focused my distance vision on what I thought would be well 331, but I could still detect no movement. The leviathan of steel lay cloaked in shadows that my night vision could barely penetrate. To my right, I suddenly sensed more than actually saw a blaze of light like the sun's. I shut down my night vision and turned, focusing south where St. Elgin's goat herder tended his animals. He was only a few clicks away, but he stood out in my enhanced vision as if he were just a few meters distant. He was covered in an all-cloaking banoose, which kept me from making out his features. He threw bits of shrub into his fire. No, I corrected myself a moment later, as a scruffy brown goat wandered too close to the blaze. He was throwing the brush at the goat to scare it away from the fire. I smiled. It was a truly bizarre anachronism to see a goat herder when it was almost the 22nd century. It was so quaint I completely missed just how out of place it was, even in the Saudi Arabian desert. St. Simon's voice drew my attention back to the east, where according to my updated map, the team had finally reached the beer. We're here, announced St. Simon's throaty rasp. What do you see? Nothing, grunted a voice, which I had to strain to remember as belonging to Corporal St. Gaul. Not an Allah forsaken thing, just dead derricks, pumps and sand. Thank you for your opinion, I growled roughly at St. Gaul. When I want it again, I will ask for it. Yes, shut up, you holy son, said Sergeant St. Nicholas. Thank you, Sergeant. I will worry about discipline. You just worry about your bomb, please. Now, I would like Major St. Simon's evaluation. Gaul wasn't too far from the truth, said the Major. It is as dead as the inside of a papal brothel. If anyone is within a click, I cannot detect them. No heartbeat, no heat traces, no visual sightings. I would say it is safe for the moment. Yes, for the moment, I muttered back at my second-in-command. What's the condition of the well? There followed a long silence at St. Simon's end, with occasional bits of sotto voce swearing. I used the break to call back on the scouts. St. Elgin, any problems? No, sir, came back an immediate reply. Our desert nomad seems to be turning in for the night. He just entered his tent. He doesn't look very worried about his goats. They don't seem to be wandering away. I sighed and said absently, He will join Allah in paradise tonight. That is probably more than we can say. Right, St. Elgin? Uh, yes, sir, said the scout hesitantly. I checked with the other scouts. They reported nothing unusual in the area. That encouraged me a bit, until St. Simon's angry voice echoed in my skull. Damn it, Colonel! Procopius's intelligence on this well was out and out dung! I swore to myself this was just what I had been fearing. 
What's the problem, St. Simon? The well is plugged up. We knew that, Major. All the wells in the area are covered with steel plates. I know, sir. We removed the steel plate, but the well has a plug of concrete in it, at least a meter thick. At that moment, conditioning or no conditioning, ally or no ally, I would have ripped off Procopius's head. Something was very, very wrong, and I did not like it. I suppressed the raw anger I felt surging through my limbs. I forced calm upon my flaming mind. Burn through it with the plasma rifles. Burn through concrete, sir? Won't that create a lot of smoke and light? That could attract attention. He was right, of course. Use the lowest setting on the rifles. That should minimize the smoke and light. Yes, Colonel. Uh, sir? Spoke up the hesitant voice of St. Gaul. What? Uh, sir, if we waste the charges on our rifles to blast through this concrete, what will we do if we need to defend ourselves? Fake it, Corporal. Get to work. Sorry, sir, said Gaul apologetically. Gaul was no fool. He recognized the importance of functional defenses. If anything further went wrong, there would be little in the way of weaponry to protect my people. Our bodies were weapons in and of themselves, but even with all our augmentation and body armor, we could only endure limited, weaponless combat against modern armaments. The garish artificial lightning of phased plasma rifle fire suddenly lit the landscape around Oil Well 331. I squinted against the fiery light and again turned down my night vision. The six men around the beer stood out starkly as if against the light of day. Sergeant St. Nicholas's massive six-foot-nine-inch frame stood off to one side with the smaller figure of St. Simon. The four junior officers of the group strafed the offending concrete plug with steady rifle fire. I groaned to myself, so much for keeping a low profile. Any passing aircraft would see this fireworks show. Oh, hell, aircraft. I'd forgotten about our scheduled rendezvous. I checked the ETA for the jet chopper's set down. Ten minutes. That meant we'd already been there for thirty-five minutes. I sighed. We would not be done here for at least another quarter hour. Well, that was the pilot's problem. I hoped he was a patient man. He would just have to wait us out. I made my way over to the edge of the Barca and balanced on the edge of the sandy slope. The incessant flare of the plasma burst continued. In my head spoke a voice. Colonel, this is St. Elgin. I, I don't even know if I should bother to report this, sir. What's the problem, Elgin? I asked, once again focusing in on the area of the goat herder. The fire was nothing more than embers, so I reactivated my night vision. The area around the tent sprang into eerie clarity. Sir, there, there seems to be a weird sort of whining noise coming from the goat herder's tent. Whining noise. I increased the gain on my auditory senses to maximum and directed them eastward to get the best acoustic reception. I strained for a long moment, but I heard nothing out there except the arid whisper of the desert wind. Whatever Elgin's sound was, it was not very loud. Is it steady or does it alter in pitch? 
It's steady. Strange, I muttered. Do you want me to check it out? Asked St. Elgin almost eagerly. I frowned. Elgin was always being reckless. I wondered in passing whether he just enjoyed living on the edge or whether he had a death wish. Well, I could send him some backup, but everyone except me was at least five kilometers away. Did I really want to get involved in any potential battle? I shrugged and smiled. Why not? Elgin was not the only one with a death wish. Wait, Corporal, I ordered. I'm coming down there. Do not do anything until I reach you. I do not like or trust any of this. Procopius's little mission is turning very sour. St. Simon, I called. I was already moving eastward, down off the Barker, before the Major answered my call. Yes, Colonel. St. Simon, I'm going to give St. Elgin some help at his scouting post. Keep me informed of your progress. We've already broken through the first quarter meter or so. It's slow going, but we're steadily eating away at the concrete. That's fine. I sped up, moving like a black freight train through the Garda of the desert plain. A silent, unstoppable wraith, I glided toward St. Elgin and his nomad. I almost chortled at the sheer joy of the physical movement. For anyone who has never felt the electric joys of bio-augmentation, I can tell you it is exhilarating. The feeling of being superhuman is just part of it. Out in the open desert of my people, there was more to it than that. I was suddenly an elemental spirit, at one with the desolate wind and the very air itself, a living Sirocco. I did not bother to locate Elgin on my retinal map until I was fairly close to the nomad and his goats. I almost swore aloud when I saw how close to the tent the corporal had moved. Elgin, did I not tell you to stay away from that tent until I reached you? I subvoked angrily. Elgin's reply was a bit slow in coming. I'm sorry, sir, he said, but the sound from the tent changed in pitch. I just couldn't wait any longer. I grumbled a long string of invectives at Elgin's parentage. This seemed not to faze the corporal in the least. Without a loss of enthusiasm, he asked, Can I move in now, sir? I sighed. The young of the world are forever believing they are mortal. Yes, do it. I am in position, I said, adding a few more colourful curses. A few metres from the fire and the goatskin tent, I froze and watched intently as St. Elgin's barely discernible figure crept up to the tent flap. Now that I was nearby, I could hear the high-pitched sound. It was obviously mechanical in nature, and it sounded vaguely familiar, but I could not place it. The wine ululated up and down a three-pitched scale. What was that? There was no movement in the one-tent camp, and no noise except for the wine. As St. Elgin raised the tent flap to enter, I noticed the goats were gone. Hardly the only thing that passed through my head as St. Elgin burst into the tent was that the old Arab was a lousy goat herder. I tensed. Nothing happened. The wine continued to issue from the tent. My corporal was silent as I growled under my breath. St. Elgin. What's in there? I demanded. No answer came. Suddenly very worried, I acted instantly. 
not concerned at all for my own welfare. At that point, I could not have cared much less for the worth of my own life. I did not know what would happen if I entered through the front of the tent as St. Elgin had done, but I was taking no chances. I rushed to the back of the skin structure and tore a ragged hole through the skins with my bare hands. I ripped through the hole, enlarging it with my body, and entered on a scene that froze my heart. St. Elgin was sprawled out on the floor. His head lay in an already congealing pool of blood. It was not immediately obvious where the blood originated, but I had a pretty good suspicion. I stepped further into the structure, and my apprehension was confirmed. There was a steady rivulet of life fluid leaking from my corporal's eye. For a moment I made the almost fatal error of forgetting I was not alone in the tent. The old, soddy goat herder looked up from a whining plasma cannon that was warming up to full charge from the hydrogen-powered jeep it sat upon. The herder, who was certainly Arab, though far from old, stared at me as if I was some sort of apparition. Without hesitation he dived toward the front seat of the jeep. Assuming he was trying to retrieve a weapon of some kind, my hand automatically went for my pistol, but I had been mesmerized by St. Elgin's dead body for too long. The herder had too big a head start on me, and mated a long moment before I did. Reflexively, obviously not even aiming, he fired three rounds in my direction from a silenced, high-powered rifle of unfamiliar make. My automatic flew from my hand, as the rifle bullet slammed into me. My chest and belly stung with muscle-wrenching pain as the steel-jacketed slugs flattened themselves against me. Thrown back several feet, I lay still and wheezed heavily, trying desperately to regain my breath. The herder, taking me for near dead, ignored me. He returned to tending his plasma cannon. Whistling tunelessly through his cracked teeth, the herder, stepped around my far-from-dead body. I grit my teeth against the red pain that pulsed through me as I pulled him to the ground. He struggled and screamed, pounding on my body armor, and when that proved futile, trying to strangle me. With an easy motion, I snapped his neck. He had no chance at all against me. His unenhanced muscles were no match for mine. Chest heaving, I crawled to my knees and slowly made my way to my feet. As I pulled off the herder's bonus, I made contact with the main attack group. I would not allow this mission to continue. Major St. Simon, I called excitedly, realizing with a sudden start I was speaking aloud and then not caring very much. Yes, sir. Is there a problem with St. Elgin? Forget St. Elgin, Major. Abort the mission. Now, drop whatever you're doing and get out. I repeat, all personnel abort mission. That includes the scouts. Get out. Do you understand me, Major St. Simon? Yes, Colonel. It could not be any plainer. Good. Get back to the chopper. Move. Yes, sir. I signed off and finished pulling away the goat herder's clothing. Underneath the desert robe of the burnous, he wore a lieutenant's uniform of the Arab League. I was beyond surprise. I dropped his still body to the ground and checked on St. Elgin. He lay immobile. Blood was no longer streaming from his head wound. 
I had no doubt he was very dead. He had been killed by a bullet entering his eye. Once the bullet had entered his skull, it had bounced around like a ping-pong ball off the polycarb armour surrounding his head. The bullet had made mush of his brains. I shook my head sadly. It looked like a horrible way to die. Since there was nothing to be done about St. Elgin, I turned my attention elsewhere. There was nothing special about the jeep or the weapon attached to it, but they should not have been on the Gawar at all. According to Cardinal Procopius, there were not supposed to be any military personnel in the area. In fury, I snapped off the barrel of the plasma cannon with the flat of my hand. It came away from the body of the cannon with a metal-shattering snap. I imagined the weapon to be Cardinal Procopius's neck. I left through the front of the tent. The goats were long gone. I moved forward a bit unsteadily. My body ached abominably where the bullets had struck me. Seeing the dying embers of the soldiers' fire, I was struck with an idea. It occurred to me that if there were any more of the enemy hidden out there, I might be able to distract some of them by creating a diversion. I re-entered the tent and retrieved St. Elgin's phase plasma rifle. Outside of the tent again, I triggered a long blast of red-orange flame at the structure. It burst upward in a fiery bolus of burning animal skins and exploding jeep. I smiled at the slight flush of pleasure the destruction brought. I watched it burn for a moment, thinking that it made a fine epitaph for St. Elgin, and then I moved out of the area. A quick check of my retinal map told me the main mission group was almost back to the Zhao Khan. They were nearing the unnamed Barka. That put them about two clicks from the chopper. My scouts were a couple of kilometers farther out, but they were making progress. I increased the speed of my churning legs to help me catch up. My people were about a kilometer from the Zhao when all hell broke loose. The first indication that something was very wrong was the screaming and cursing of my men over the battle network. Then I topped a rise in the rolling plain and saw the coruscating flashes of plasma fire lighting the near horizon. I shouted into the network, forgetting completely about subvoking. Simon, what is happening? Who is attacking you? No answer. I swore and rushed toward the firefight and kept shouting. St. Simon, answer me! Over the battle network I could hear my men incoherently shouting at one another. Who are they? Where did they come from? They are flanking us! Look out, Major! To the east! Open up fire to the east! No, the west! Where are they, Sergeant? Two of the blue phosphines on my map blinked out. The battle network informed me I had just lost St. Gaul and St. Wendell. I growled deeply in my throat. Malesh! Someone was attacking my people. Someone whom we had not detected. Someone who had been expecting us. Someone who... It struck me like a flash of lightning that we had been set up. Cardinal Procopius had betrayed us. He had given us this mission not only expecting it to fail, but ensuring its failure. I did not worry about the reason for the Cardinal's betrayal. I seldom care about the reasons for things. I realized as I ran toward the fray that I could now kill Procopius 
without compunction. The thought pleased me. He had betrayed his own troops. That had made him part of the enemy. I sneered beneath the black mask of my face. For once I would enjoy my homecoming. I reached the vivid scene of the battle just as another phosphine blinked out. St. Hector, I noted distractedly. I concentrated on the scene before me. My three remaining men were back to back on a small sandy hill. They were surrounded by concentrated fire from a group of at least fifteen guerrillas at the base of the hill. The enemy was protected from the brunt of return fire by boulders. Sergeant St. Nicholas had discarded the burden of his nuke, which I suspected was a dud, and was raking the sheltered enemy with plasma fire. Beside the giant sergeant were the two smaller figures of St. Simon and Corporal St. Quintus, both of whom were following the lead of the sergeant. As I watched, the enemy lost another man to St. Simon's marksmanship. The Arabs were covered in body armor much as my men were, but unlike my forces, their heads and hands are exposed. The concentrated fire needed to take out my men was not necessary against them. A well-placed burst of energy would kill. Now that I was in a position to attack the guerrillas from the rear, I subvoked to my scouts. Scouts, are you still with me? I asked, knowing very well that they were from my map readouts. Yes, sir, came the simultaneous reply of the three. Good, I grinned roughly. We're going to help our comrades. Sebastian, I want you to come in from the west, attack the enemy from behind. Thomas, north. Bernard, east. I will take the south. Aim for their unarmored heads. Get into position. I will give you the signal to attack. They gave their quick assent. With that, I ordered them into position. It took long seconds to set up long seconds in which St. Quintus lost his life. Then only St. Nicholas and St. Simon were left. They stood back to back, a blazing plasma rifle in each hand. St. Nicholas raged at the enemy. He brought down another one that left about thirteen of them. Just as I was despairing that St. Simon and St. Nicholas would run out of time before we could help, St. Sebastian arrived into position just west of the firefight. I wasted no more time. Tensely I grit my teeth and ordered them in. We hit them like locomotives from the compass points. They may have been armored almost as well as we were, but they did not possess the augmented reflexes or anger that we did. Moving with the speed of the wind, I caved in the head of one man with a flying kick. Upon landing, I opened up with St. Elgin's plasma rifle taking off the heads of two more goggle-eyed gorillas. From behind I felt the hellish heat of a plasma beam engulf my body. I whipped around a boulder for shelter but discovered it was already occupied by a scouting gorilla. I instantly slammed the butt of my rifle into his spine. The polycarb armor was an efficient preventative for penetration by projectiles, but it did little good against the disintegrating pressure of enhanced musculature. The man gave a short cry and collapsed. Seeing our small victory, St. Nicholas and St. Simon shouted joyfully from the top of the hill, and ducking what little fire was now aimed at them, rushed the remaining enemy. We made short work of the few who were left. The scouts had taken most from behind. 
The enemy guerrillas had not suspected there were any more of us out in the desert. When things were finally back under control and we had taken care of our enemies, I took St. Simon aside to ask him what the hell had happened. He explained that he and his men had been taken completely by surprise. The guerrillas had been hidden beneath the sands between the unnamed Barca and the Zhao Khan. That had been how they had avoided detection. Malesh. It was an old trick. One I should have been looking for. Once they were out of hiding, they wholly surrounded St. Simon's men. Outnumbered and trapped, they had no choice but to stand and fight. So I had been right. It had been a setup all along. The enemy fighters had been waiting for us. But why? I shrugged off the question for the moment. I would get that answer out of Procopius one way or another. Let us get out of here, I said aloud. St. Sebastian, was there any problem with the chopper when you came in from the west? No, sir, the pilot was impatient, but he was ready to depart at any moment we arrived. Good, let us get out of here. I have a feeling that aircraft support might not be too long in coming. My men took my advice and headed toward the nearby slope of the Jar. I turned for one last look at the battlefield before I left. I wanted to emblazon it in my mind so that it would be easier to recall the dead members of my company when I accused Procopius of his treachery. The knife hit me a moment before I turned to leave. Another second earlier or later and would have swished harmlessly past my head. Instead, it sank up to its hilt in my left eye. I stumbled to the ground as all my strength drained with a sudden realization that I was dying. It dimly filtered through my brain that the thrown knife had to have been the last dying act of a desperate fighter whom I had probably sentenced to death myself. It was ironic that with so much high technology turned uselessly against me, I was brought down by so archaic a weapon as a dagger. I smiled a giddy, even heady smile as I died. From a distance I felt rough hands grab at my body and lift me. Strangely I felt no pain, no loss. I knew I was heading toward a freedom, either toward the Christian peace of heaven or Allah's paradise. It did not matter to me any more. I would be free. That was the last thing I remembered as I lay with a dagger stealing away my final thoughts. Cottony nothingness filled my numbing brain, waiting for the freedom that beckoned me. 5. I awoke with a start. Confusion filled me. I remembered a knife in my skull. I remembered dying. Where was I? I examined my surroundings and found what I recognized to be the base infirmary on Volcano. I abruptly noticed I was seeing through both my eyes. My hand automatically went to my left eye, which I found disturbingly intact. I realized with a start that my hand was covered in skin, not polycarbon. More disgruntled now, I squeezed my digits into a fist. I gasped in dismay. Where was the powerful pulse of bio-augmentation in my muscles? What had happened to me? I was suddenly as weak as a newborn calf.
Wonderful, said an exultant voice from the doorway. You are finally awakened. That is magnificent. I turned to face Cardinal Procopius. In a voice filled with ashes, I said, No thanks to you, you bastard. To my surprise, the Cardinal laughed. It is only due to me that you live. What? I demanded, weakly sitting up. There was mocking humor in his voice as he spoke. You died out in the Gawar. You died before we even got you here. My head felt light, filled like a gas balloon. As he spoke, my hands began to shake. I do not understand. What do you mean? Was that too complicated for you? I repeat to myself. You died. I growled. I live, you fool. Can you not see that? I would put up with no more of this nonsense. Are you sure? He asked me in the same matter-of-fact voice he would have used to ask if our stocks of grenades were sufficient. I knew then that something was horribly wrong. I did not know what, but I would find out. You betrayed us, I hissed, trying to get out of bed and discovering my legs were too weak to hold my weight. You told the enemy that we would attack the Gawar. They knew. Again he chuckled. I struggled to get to my feet. He ignored me. You are quite right, St. Stephen. I did leak that to them. But I am no traitor. I have my reasons for doing what I did. I stopped and sat back weakly on my bed as my conditioning cut in. If he had legitimate reasons, I could do nothing to him. What reasons? I demanded. I will get to that. First, tell me how you feel. Alive, I said angrily, disputing his earlier claim that I was dead. Good. You did die out there in the desert, you know. He repeated, purposely vexing me. Furiously, I said, Then tell me how I sit here, obviously alive and whole. I unconsciously touched my left eye. The cardinal's fat face grinned maliciously at me. Obviously he was taking great pleasure in my discomfort. I'm sorry to tell you this, St. Stephen, but you're a clone. I laughed in the fat prelate's face. He was purposely trying to goad me, but I would not be pushed into reacting. A clone, I said calmly, would have none of my memories. It would be a twin, but nothing more. You know that. The grin disappeared from Procopius's face. You're wrong, St. Stephen. I could not miss the horrible sincerity in his voice. I just gaped at him. I was motionless except for a vague trembling that suddenly crept through my body. The purpose of the mission to the Kawar was not to blow up the oil field. As you pointed out days ago, its distraction would mean little to the enemy. No, the purpose was to test out a new miniature imprint recorder. My trembling worsened. What? We installed several of the imprint recorders in the bodies of your mission team. Your body was the only one bearing a recorder that we recovered. Why? I stuttered, my worst nightmares materialized before my eyes. Well, the purpose of the recorder is to register all memories and life experiences of the subjects. Oh, Allah! The purpose of the mission was to test the imprint recorders under battle conditions. The trembling was almost uncontrollable now as I stood. Then you are telling me? 
I could not finish, but Procopius had no such problems. Yes, you are a force-grown clone with the imprinted memories of the original St. Stephen. We haven't had a chance to augment you at all yet, so you're in a completely natural state right now. I suddenly could not catch my breath. I lurched toward Procopius, wheezing as if my last breaths were on my lips. I knew I intended to strangle him even as I raised my hands toward his throat. But it was not to be. The imprinted memories from my original were quite complete, down to the first conditioning by the papal allies. I was halted before I had barely moved toward him. The conditioning sensed the anger, pain and anguish in my mind, but it would not allow me to satisfy the violence that was called for to quell it. Procopius observed my predicament with his usual sordid amusement. It's good to see your conditioning is still in place, though in your weakened state you would not have been able to injure me anyway. Why? I cried out in anguish. Why have you done this to me? The cardinal looked at me distastefully. It was nothing personal, I assure you. The recorded devices will be a great boon, not only to our most important prelates, who will soon be implanted, but to our best military leaders, like yourself. I myself have protested against the implantation of these devices to the clergy. A question of souls, you know. Does an imprinted clone of the original have a soul? A good question for the theologians. I was not listening any longer to his chatter. Only one thing was passing through my mind, the thought of eternal slavery. No, I screamed, knowing the futility of my protest. I could do nothing. I would be a slave forever to these infidel bastards. 6. In the weeks that followed my resurrection, I was re-augmented and put back in charge of my troops. During the next two missions to which I was assigned behind enemy lines, I managed to put myself at enough risk so that I was killed. No, it did not go against my combat conditioning. It was easy to convince myself I was putting myself at risk to aid my men. My death wish was hidden away within the recesses of my heart. I hoped beyond hope I would be killed and left behind, that they would be unable to recover my body or the imprint recorder. I hoped, but the fortune of Allah did not shine upon me. After each rebirth, the same round of thoughts and worries went through my head, worries that no other humans in history have had. What was I? Who was I? If I had the memories of the original Saint Stephen, then how much of him was in me? Did I have Saint Stephen's soul within me, chained to the earth, or was I only a piteous imitation who thought himself Saint Stephen? Would I reach heaven after my next death, only to find three other souls there with the same memories? It was horrifying, terrifying and fascinating all at the same time. After my third death, I was called to the Vatican. Oddly enough, it had nothing to do with my deaths or combat record. It was for a theological purpose. The Pope and his personal theologian wanted to question me and determine for themselves whether I had a soul or not. Obviously the same thoughts plagued the church that tortured my own mind. I was ushered into the papal audience chamber by the Swiss guards. I could feel their augmented strength easily handling me as I was escorted by the arm to see the Pope. I tried to tug myself free, but it was to no avail. I had just recovered from my third death 
and was not yet re-augmented. The papal audience chamber was vast and marvellous. It had an inlaid pink and gold marble floor. The walls were covered in ancient multicoloured tapestries depicting religious scenes. I noticed an especially conspicuous wall hanging that recounted the stoning of the first Christian martyr, St. Stephen. The depiction, though it must have been hundreds of years old, was still brightly coloured. The scarlet threads that delineated Stephen's spilt blood seemed almost supernaturally palpable to me. I shuddered. My abstraction with the tapestry was broken by the Swiss guards who decided I had ogled for long enough. They dragged me forward into the room past wide fluted columns and ornate furniture lining the walls. I did not appreciate being treated in so base a manner, but I could neither argue nor struggle to any useful end. I allowed myself to be dragged. Finally my movement was checked. At one end of the room, upon a raised dais, was an impressive cathedral, hewn from what looked like a single piece of solid oak. Beside the cathedral stood an emaciated bearded man in the red habit of a cardinal. On the massive throne-like chair sat a chubby, plain-looking fellow in white robes and skull cap. Plain though he was, he exuded an awesome quiet dignity. His black Latin eyes burned through me. I knew him immediately for the Pope. I was brought to his feet by the Swiss guards and pushed roughly to my knees. The Pope smiled and waved off his bodyguards. The pontiff held out his hand, obviously offering his ring for the kissing. I moved toward it, bringing my lips to within inches of his famed symbol of office. I hesitated, and with a gasp I broke off at the last second. I do not know what happened within me at that moment. I do not understand how I found the strength to bring my will under my own control. Perhaps there was a replicative strain that weakened the conditioning process as it passed from one St. Stephen clone to the next. Perhaps I was psychically ripened enough to break free, or perhaps it was just a blessing from Allah. I do not know. All I know is that my original self could not have broken free, but I did. I threw myself at the Pope. We will be free! We will regain our holy lands! I shrieked at the top of my lungs. We will no longer be your slaves. Allah will yet have his vengeance! I vainly tried to crush his windpipe, but my unaugmented strength was insufficient. After only a few moments at his throat, I was slammed backwards to the marble floor by the Swiss guards. Roughly they dragged me away as I screamed and struggled. At that moment I wanted nothing more than the blood of a pope upon my hands, but I could not free myself from the guards' steely grip. I watched in sickened amusement as the pope just stared at me, not understanding at all what was occurring, not comprehending in the least what was before his eyes. He had not expected an attack from a loyal follower. I'm sure he wonders even now how it happened. How did a crazed maniac get into his audience chamber? How did a slave who had been so well controlled for so long get loosened from his psychic bonds? Who was the soulless heathen who dared lay hands on the holy flesh of a pontiff? Perhaps his holiness will search for answers. Perhaps he will even find them. Either way, I hope he has a long talk with Cardinal Procopius. Maybe, just maybe, 
he may even let me die a final time. To Allah we all belong, and to him, in the end, we all return. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you have enjoyed J.J. Campanella's The Full Armor of God, copyright 2008, all rights reserved. That wonderful dark Middle Eastern theme music was called Isafan II and was composed by Terry Divine King. It's available on sounddogs.com for your listening pleasure. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com and check out our MySpace website to contact fellow listeners. MySpace.com slash audio. We are listed on Podcast Alley. Please feel free to vote for the adult or kids' bookcasts so that we can get more listeners. As usual, check out our cafe web press site for t-shirts and gookads and doodads and other things. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. Next week, we will start presenting Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit by P.G. Wodehouse on this adult podcast stream. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.